Um, so we've been going through our inductive Bible study. We're, we're in the section of the Bible study about interpretation. You know, how do we understand what we've been reading? You know, we started with con- considering the context. Uh, last week, we, we went over interp- you know, interpretive correlation. You know, how do we identify um, themes that are showing up or not so much themes, but words that and phrases that show up throughout the scripture in different places. Um, and we talked about a hierarchy of, you know, in order to understand what's being written, you know, looking at what did the same author write about in the same book? Because authors, what we know about authors is authors tend to use the same words and phrases in the same way. Um, looking within the same the same author, but maybe a different book. So how did Paul use the word love, you know, in one book versus another? Looking in the same test, you know, looking within the same testament or the same covenant, and then looking across the whole spectrum of Scripture. Now, we know that Scripture is harmonious, so it's not going to contradict itself. But we also know that when we seek to understand what a word means and phrases mean, which is where we're going to be today, uh, discovering the meaning of words and phrases. Uh, and this is going to dig back into a lot of what we looked at at the beginning of when we identify our significant or non-routine terms. And this is called a lexical or contextual analysis. And that is, what does the word mean or what does a word or phrase potentially mean within its context? Um, because words mean virtually nothing apart from their context. The context of the word always takes precedence over the dictionary definition. When you've opened up, for example, and we see this in English dictionaries, when you open up an English dictionary, how many potential meanings does a word have? Some, of the, some words have a ton of potential meanings. But not every usage of that word is going to carry all the potential meanings with it. Um, so, for example, the word vehicle, and this will pop up again later, you know, the word vehicle could be referring to a car or an automobile, but vehicle could also mean a means of accomplishing something. Both are potential meanings of that word, but only the context is going to tell us what that word means. Because by themselves, words have a huge range of meaning, but only the context will give you the specific meaning intended by the author. And this is what we mean when we say context takes precedence. That the words mean what the author intended that word to mean, not what the dictionary says it could potentially mean. So, just kind of some guardrails. Those are some guardrails that are going to keep us from over-interpreting a particular word or phrase. Consequently, word studies can be helpful but are of limited utility in themselves. A word study needs to be part of a bigger study of the scripture. Um, But 
understanding the word that's written is critically important. But understanding the word by itself doesn't tell us a whole lot. The, how that word is used will tell us what we need to know. So there are some principles at play when we do a, context, a lexical or a contextual analysis. If we remember back from at the very beginning where we outlined seven principles for, seven hermeneutical principles, you know, guardrails that will keep us from straying too far in one direction or the other and staying true to the text, we have the linguistic principle. That is, and this, this takes, this comes to the forefront when we're doing lexical analysis, you know, lexical study, that the original language of the Bible always takes precedence over any given translation. You know, what we know is the Bible was, you know, the New Testament was written in Greek. The Old Testament was written almost entirely in Hebrew, except some places in Daniel where it was written in Aramaic. So what those words mean, will, or what those words are, will always take precedence over what a translator says that word should be in English. There's also the contextual principle that we're always going to strive to understand the text within the confines of its historical, literary, and theological context. What does this word mean given how it's used in this particular text? Like I said, we go back to the word vehicle. In and of itself, the word vehicle can have a very wide range of meaning, but the text will tell us, are we referring to a means of transportation? Are we referring to something else? And there's, there's the exegetical principle, that we're seeking to draw out the meaning of the word from the text rather than reading in what we would like that word to mean. Um, an example in where we see sometimes in various translations or in various belief, um, theological systems where maybe this can go off the rails um, is how do we interpret what the Greek word for tongues means? Yeah. In context, oftentimes in Acts or where the word tongue or where Paul uses the word tongues in Corinthians but especially where it shows up in Acts on Pentecost, the word tongues, its normal everyday usage and its contextual usage there is referring to a known extant language. You know, we're speaking English. That's a tongue. But when people stray from the exegetical principle or even the contextual principle of what does this word mean, how am I drawing out the meaning, they've interpreted it to mean some heavenly unknown spiritual language. And those in the charismatic movement will interpret the word that way, but when we adhere to sound hermeneutical principles, we see that that's not really what that word means. So that, that's an example of how using these guardrails can keep us within the appropriate range of meaning of what the text says. So where do we begin? You know, this phrase, you know, a lexical contextual analysis. You know, what, where do we even begin with this? 
you know, maybe for some, this is the first time we've ever heard, you've ever heard of this. Um, it's probably not the first time that anybody's actually done this. Because anytime we're reading a book, whether we're reading the Bible, whether we're reading any other word, we're do, and we come to a word that we're not sure of what it means, we do a lexical contextual analysis. You know, we're looking, okay, what's going on around? What's the, what's the potential meaning of this word? Does that definition make sense in context? If not, okay, what am I missing? We do this all the time. The first place we start, though, is we, again, we go back to one of our observations, you know, one of the observation steps is we use the terms and phrases that we have identified as significant or non-routine terms. While every word on the page is significant and every word on the page exists for a reason, not every word in the Bible carries the meaning of a particular text. There are some words that carry the meaning of the text more than others. You know, for example, in any particular in any particular passage on faith, the word faith probably carries the lion's share of the meaning in that particular section more than maybe what the word is or the does. Now, those words are there for a reason. They do impart some degree of meaning to the text, but the lion's share of the meaning is going to be carried by the significant term. So we start with our significant or non-routine terms. Why do we start with significant or non-routine terms? It's a time and efficiency thing. We do want to make the best use of the time that we're in the scripture. And we want to, we want to be efficient in our study of the scripture. You know, we don't, we don't want to run down the... Um, rabbit trails where there's not a lot of meaning there. Um, we could spend a lot of time studying the articles A, and, and the, and we would spend a lot of time. But how efficient is that going to be? Is that going to be the best use of our time in the scripture? Probably not. So it's a time and efficiency matter. Remember the non-routine words or significant types of words from, an, from our earlier section where we identified these are the significant things. There's those that are contextually crucial. You know, these are words, just as a, by way of refresher, these are words or phrases that in a particular context convey the primary argument or meaning of a passage. So in Hebrews chapter 11, you know, we think that great hall of faith chapter, well, the word for faith, or pistis in the Greek, is probably going to carry the weight of the meaning of that. It'd be a good idea to know what that word actually means. That would be a contextually crucial term. Theologically profound terms. These would be words and phrases that infer some type of theological significance. We, would think of, we could think of words like forgiveness, grace, justification, redemption, you know, especially words where we think of salvific terms, 
Those are probably pretty darn significant, theologically profound terms. Historically particular terms. So these would be culturally, geographically, or historically particular terms that may not be understood outside the world of the Bible. Words, words and phrases that we probably aren't going to run into outside of Scripture or outside of a biblical setting. Probably that may be a word that's worth studying. Uncertain terms. So these would be words that they could be interpreted a few different ways depending on the context. And this is something that really comes to light when we're reading a text in multiple translations. So, you know, maybe a word is translated one way in the ESV. Maybe it's translated a different way in the NIV. Maybe the King James translates it differently. Um, so how do we understand this? Figurative or symbolic terms. These would be fra you know, figures of speech or words that are using symbolism to convey a particular truth about a passage. So we would want to study what does this particular word or phrase or symbolism, what does this mean? How, these are good places to start. You know, when we talk about, you know, when we talk about why do we do this, you know, it's a time and efficiency matter. How, again, how do we best use the time and the energy that we have? Because again, we want our time in Scripture to be productive. These are, these are good words to start with. Now, they're... Um, So when we talk about different strategies, there's really two main strategies for doing this. One is a tr your traditional word study. Uh, maybe, some, maybe some have done a word study before. Um, and then there's another type of study which is related but different. It's called the semantic field study. And we'll get into to both of those. The advantage of either of each one of these, it can help us understand the potential range of meaning of a word or a phrase. The disadvantage, in and of itself, it doesn't tell us anything about the context. The context is supplied for us, you know, by the particular passage in which we're reading it. But when we pull a word, and this is where we need to be very careful when we're doing a word study or semantic field, is when we pull a word out of its context, we can learn a whole lot about the potential meaning, but again, what that word is meant in context is going to be determined, again, by the context. Again, you're hearing me talk about context a whole lot. If you haven't figured it out, context is critical in doing a word study. Um, because again, a word doesn't when a word is used in scripture, the word means what the original author intended it to mean. It doesn't mean whatever the dictionary says that it could mean. Because a lot of words, again, have multiple different potential meanings. But when we use a word, we're not meaning its full range of meaning. We're usually, t we're meaning it in a particular way. So when we talk about traditional word study, 
the first thing that we want to do is identify the underlying Greek or Hebrew word that's being translated in the text. Um, because word studies, you know, when we're reading our Bible in English, we're reading translations. You know, the Bible was not written in English. King James didn't come up with the Bible. Um, the Bible was written, like I said, New Testament was written in Greek. Old Testament was written in Hebrew. Some sections of it written in Aramaic. This is, you know, step one here is adhering to that linguistic principle that we talked about. You know, the linguistic principle that the original language of the Bible takes precedence because that's what the author wrote. And so that word was used for a particular reason and it has a meaning within that context. So there are a number of different ways that we can identify the Greek and Hebrew word that's used in the text. There are a number of different resources and we'll go into resources. Some people may have seen the stack of books that Ken and I brought in over here. Um, and there are, there are a number of different online resources that are freely available that can help us identify what's the word that's underlying the English translation. Once we've identified what the word itself is, which is a relatively straightforward task, um, we, we begin to identify what's the range of what a word could mean. This is basically where we go to the dictionary, such as it is for the Greek and Hebrew, biblical Greek and Hebrew, to find out what's the potential range of meaning, how is this word used in different contexts throughout Scripture. One resource that I, that I use quite a bit, um, it's a free resource. There's an app, um, there's a free app for phones for it. Um, also online, you know, just, and yeah, okay, I forgot about this slide. So just a quick note about languages, the reason why there can be a, a wide range of meanings for, you know, when we're translating from Greek to English or Hebrew to English, it's not a straightforward one-to-one -one translation of, oh, this word always means this, because they're different languages, but they're not just different languages. They're even fundamentally different styles of language. So when we think of like the languages that come from Latin, like English, or Spanish, French, Italian, those languages all pretty much adhere to the same type of rules, um, more or less the same type of structure because they're all from, they all derive from Latin. Um, so when we talk about languages, so when we look at Greek and Hebrew, it's what we call a synthetic language. Word order isn't quite as important in those languages, so you could put the words in in almost any order, but the part of speech is determined by just a series of word endings. Um, so you could say, God loves me, loves God me, me loves God, but depending on that word endings, it all means the same thing. Emphasis is a little bit different, but word order doesn't matter a whole lot. In English, and I saw some looks as I was saying that, it just, to our English ear, that just sounds absolutely absurd. And that's the huge difference between the biblical language 
in English. In English, word order matters. We don't have different word endings telling us what part of speech something is. There are some holdovers from a much older version of English. You know, think of like who, whom, where, and whence, things like that that are old holdovers. But by and large, it's word order. Strict word order is what tells us what, the, what part of speech something is. So, what's that? In English. In Greek and Hebrew, word order doesn't really tell us what part of speech something is. It's all of the different endings that come onto a word. So, so that's just a quick note. I don't want to get too hung up on that. Um, but it's one of the reasons why when we talk about what's the full, what's the potential range of meaning of a word, this is one of the things that can contribute to the potential range of meaning of a word is how it's used. So some basic word study resources. Um, there are some, I, I put a lo much longer list on the handout of different types of resources. There's your concordances. So like Strong's, Strong's Exhaustive Concordance. Um, is a really good resource. And a lot of the, uh, with Strong's Exhaustive Concordance, Strong's has several different concordances based on the particular translation that you're using. Um, I think Strong's has one for the King James, the NIV, the NASB, and the ESV. And there may be the New King James. I think there's the New King James as well. Um, there's one series that's called the Book Study Concordance where it, it goes book by book through the Bible, or I think just the New Testament is out right now. And it looks at the vocabulary of a particular book. The one that I want to go through is just a quick, uh, is Bible Hub. It's a free resource. It's available on your phone. Um, I, th I think both for Android phones and iPhones. It's a free app, very comprehensive. So this is, I did some screenshots of Bible Hub. Um, so it's BibleHub.com, and it'll pull you up. Um, there's a whole wide range of resources. So if you, for this one, we go to, I picked Romans 1 just to look at. So we have Romans 1, it pulls up the whole chapter. So I'm reading through Romans 1, kind of working through, this is making sense. Say I get down to... Verse 16, and I've identif you know, I identify the word power. You know, maybe you know, verse 16 is something I want to look at a little bit more. Well, is, it tr is that word translated differently? It could just a different translation give me a sense of what that means? So what I would do is I would just click on the number 16, and it'll pull up. Now, there's a lot more different translations as you go down. It probably has like 40 different translations available, but up top will be some of the most common ones. Okay, well, how does it translate? Well, okay, so we see power, 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 power. Okay, so they're all fairly consistent. That word is translated power. Well, what is that word? 
Well, if I want to find out what that word is, I'll scroll back up top. There's an interlinear function right there. So I click on that, and it will pull up the Greek text with the English words right underneath it telling us what it means, or what the words are. So I'll click on that, and we see... So here's the English text for, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of God, for it's you know, the power. Oh, power. Oh, well, there's the word right there. Dynamis, or dunamis, depending on your particular, trans, or particular pronunciation. As you can see, though, above each word, there's a number. All of the words in the, in, on Bible Hub there's a number above the original Greek or Hebrew word. It's keyed to Strong's exhaustive concordance. So Strong, way before computers, did an absolutely exhaustive work of assigning a number to every word in the Bible. So when you click on this number, so this word dunamis is Greek word number 1411. Click on the number. Does that pull up? When I, maybe. Oh, so it's going to pull up the dictionary definition of it. Okay, dunamis. Oh, it means power, might, strength. How it's used, the different ways that it's used throughout the New Testament. It can be talking about physical power, powerful deeds, marvelous works. This word is also translated as miracles in the Gospels. So we be, we're beginning to see a little bit more about how this word is used. What's the potential range of meaning of this word? But remember, we want, we want to know what the word means in this particular context. Because not every word has the full range, well, no word has the full range of its potential meaning every time it's used. We want to know what it means. So we find here there's a note that this is a very important term. It's used 120 times in the New Testament. That yeah, word that's used 120 times seems like a pretty darn important word. Especially when we see that this word is associated with God. Power of God. Well, that's something I certainly want to know about. So I can scroll down. And there's a whole messy list of all the different times it shows up in the different contexts. But again, remember, I'm looking at Romans 1.16. That's what I care about. Not that I don't care about the rest of Scripture, but right now, the context that I'm looking at that I'm looking at is right here. Oh, we begin to see things or persons of God in which God's saving power shows its efficacy. Oh, well, that's how that word is used. So we're talking, it's not just talking about general power here, it's talking about saving power. That's the context. So now we know a little bit more about this word. And like I said, some, there are some words, this is a rather one of the more extensive ones within Bible Hub, but there are other words that, especially if it's a word that only shows up a couple of times, or maybe it only shows up once, 
it's not going to be this long. Power, it shows up 120 times. There's going to be a lot of examples. So, as you, I mean, we even worked through a little bit more. So we saw the range of what it could mean. Physical power, saving power, miraculous works. Whole wide range. But when we look at the context, well, so within the context of Romans 1, it's talking about God saving. It's talking about salvation. The meaning of that word starts narrowing rather considerably when we look at the context. So we look, the step, second step is we look at what it could mean as a whole, but then what does the, what does the word mean in its context? Again, to perform an effective word study, we have to engage with the original language, but that can be done on it, like I said, that can be done at a number of different levels because not everybody has a conversational understanding of biblical Greek? I sure don't. My understanding of biblical Greek is fairly shallow. I'm working on it, but it's fairly shallow still. Um, but much like inductive Bible study as a whole, it's a type of study that we call expansible, that people who are just beginning to do this can work at it at the level they're at. And as we practice, as we engage with the text more, as we, as we learn, we can begin engaging at a deeper level. This, this is a process that we can go as shallow or as deep as our, as our abilities allow us to. We're always with the goal that we become more skillful and we can dive deeper. So one, one does not need to have a commanding understanding of the biblical languages in order to do this. So once we've determined the range of meaning of a particular word, again, we look at the context to constrain the meaning. Could someone read Ecclesiastes 7.16? I don't know who, who has it there first. Be sword drills. Whoever gets it can go. Okay, Ken says he has it. Ecclesiastes seven sixteen. Be not overly righteous, and do not make yourself too wise. Why should you destroy yourself? Why should you destroy yourself? Well, that's... That's, that's kind of intense. Why should you... Yeah, yeah, be not overly righteous. Don't make yourself too wise. Why should you destroy yourself? That's really intense. There's a seeming consequence for doing that if we destroy ourselves. What, what does destroy mean? How is that... What, what does destroy mean here? Well, yeah. Why should you not? Why should you destroy yourself? Well, so the Hebrew word 
that's translated as destroyed is shamem. And it has a huge range of meaning. It can be to be destroyed, to be appalled, to be astonished, to be dismayed, to be bewildered, to be disappointed. I think there's one place where it's also translated as confused, tapping into that idea of bewilderment. But the larger context helps us narrow down the possible meanings. Ken, do you still have that text open? Could you read the uh, verses 15 through 18? In my vain life, I have seen everything. There is a righteous man who perishes in his righteousness, and there is a wicked man who prolongs his life in his evil doing. Be not overly righteous, and do not make yourself too wise. Why should you destroy yourself? Be not overly wicked, neither be a fool. Why should you die before your time? It is good that you should take hold of this, and from that withhold not your hand, for the one who fears God shall come out from both of them. Okay. Does our context there give us any clue about the potential meaning of this word that's translated as destroyed? Could it be destroyed? I mean, could the meaning that the, that the teacher is getting at here mean destroyed? It could, for sure. Because, you know, it's talking about dying before time. Well, that certainly sounds like destruction. Um, but he's also talking about vanity. You know, it opens, that section opens up talking about, in my vain life, I've seen everything. And I'm getting to the end of my life. I've pursued all of these things. And now I'm looking back at the end. I'm at the end of my life looking back on my vain life. Maybe it has the sense of being disappointed. It's been a waste. Does that fit with the context of Ecclesiastes? Certainly in other places, the writer writes, you know, the teacher writes, vanity, vanity, all is vanity. Yeah. So there, there's a sense of the wise man being, the, the one who's made himself wise being destroyed, being disappointed. It's been a waste. So we get, we get a larger context, or we get a meaning from the larger context of this section. It could be destroyed, but context also gives us an idea of what's the nature of that destruction. It's all been a waste. So a semantic, as opposed to a word study, a semantic field study looks at a particular word but also any word that could be related either as a synonym or an antonym. An example of the word car. What's a synonym for car? Buggy, vehicle. What's a synonym for vehicle? I'm glad that you said the vehicle. Truck, school bus, what else? Horse, airplane. What else for vehicle? Train. Train. 
transport? What about means? That's a synonym for vehicle. It's the means of doing something. So when we talk about a, a semantic field, we're looking at the whole wide range of, all re- of words that could be related. And we see, at least in English, with the word car, that once we start making those connections among words that could be related usages, that gets pretty big. This can, again, this can be helpful to give us an idea of the fuller potential sense of the word, just seeing all of the words that are related to it. But there's a danger in that. Again, there's the danger that this can run very far afield. So we do have, again, we have to be mindful as we get into, you know, as, we're, as we move through, we, we're going to be looking at some at errors that people often will make and that we need to guard against. But to differentiate between the semantic range, the semantic range is basically think of it as the, all the possible dictionary definitions of this word. The semantic field is not just the dictionary definition. Think of the semantic field as like Roger's thesaurus. So we have the dictionary and we have the, have the, have the thesaurus. Thesaurus. Yeah. So, so we're doing essentially semantic ranges. We're doing a dictionary search. Semantic field is we're doing a thesaurus search. Probably the, probably the, the simplest way to, that I could break that down. But there are some dangers. Any time that we pull a word out of its context to look at what the potential meaning of it is, there are dangers that we run into. Because again, remember at the, me- at the beginning, the meaning of a word ultimately me- in, its, in the text ultimately means what the author intended it to mean. The reason we do a word study or a semantic field study is it's not always clear up front what did the author intend for that to mean. Some dangers. What we, the first one is what we call the full semantic range fallacy or sometimes what's called the totality transfer fallacy. This is when we assume that the, to- that the majority of a word's semantic range is assumed to exist in that context. So when we look at a word, we look it up in the dictionary, and we assume that that word in its usage means every possible dictionary definition for that word. We can, if we fall into that fallacy we can end up with some pretty out there definitions and interpretations of a particular text. Some may make sense. Some may make absolutely no sense. A related one is what we call the common priority fallacy. For example, when the more common usage is generally given priority over its common meaning, or 
it's less common meaning. For example, if we know that 95% of the time the word, when the word vehicle is used, it means a car. We fall into this fallacy when we assume that, oh, well, the odds are this means a car, so I'm just going to assume this means a car. Except maybe the author wasn't using its common definition. Maybe it was using the less common definition. There are certain words in the Hebrew and in the Greek, um, one, one that often um, that, that shows up in different places throughout the New Testament is the word gine. The word gine in Greek generally means a woman. Just generic, it is the generic word used to refer to woman. And that's how it's used most of the time. Except when it's not. Because there's a specialized meaning of that word that means wife. So we see that word show up in the text, gine. We fall into this fallacy when we assume that every time gine shows... Awesome. <laughs> we fall into that fallacy whenever we assume that every time gine shows up in the text that it means woman. Because there are some times in the text where it means wife. I hope that didn't break. Thank you. Um, it's the same thing with the word for man and husband. The word aner is, hus is man, generally. The overwhelming majority of the time, it means man, except when it means husband. So we have to be careful to assume that every time a word shows up that it means its most common thing. Because odds are, it will mean the most common thing, but we need to be careful to assume, of, not to assume that every time it shows up, it means the most common. Because there are times it doesn't. There's the, what's called the root fallacy. And that's assuming that the meaning of a word is a conglomeration of its parts. Think of a compound word. We, assume, we can fall into the fallacy of assuming that the word is just simply the meaning of its two parts. In English, think of the word pineapple. Pine, apple. Oh, well, we put them together and, well, the root fallacy is assuming, well, a pineapple, that's an apple that grows on a pine tree. But is, is that what a pineapple is? Not at all. What's it? Carpet. Yeah, or the word carpet. Yeah. Oh, well, there's car and there's pet. Oh, a carpet, that's, a, that's an animal that travels with you in your vehicle. 
is that what carpet is? No, not, not at all. Now, if you have a pet that travels with you in the vehicle, you may develop a carpet in your vehicle of, of fine fur. But so that's an example of the root fallacy. And we run into this in Greek. So there are Greek words, and Paul does this all the time. There are certain words that show up in Paul's letters that are completely unique to Paul. In fact, some of them, the best that we can tell, some of the words that Paul uses, it is the only time in the entire Greek language that that word shows up. So trying to determine the meaning of that word is a real interesting task because there's absolutely nothing to compare it to. But we fall into the root fallacy when we assume that Paul just meant these two words smashed together and that's what this means. Sometimes that's what it means, but not all the time. It's very similar in some ways to the common priority. Most of the time the word is going to mean it's common meaning, but not all the time. And the last one is what we call the exegetical distinction fallacy. This is sometimes a harder one to identify, but it's, we it's when we read a word and we, we presuppose that the biblical writer was always referring to this heightened theological distinction when he used this word. No. Sometimes the writer meant exactly what the common definition of that word meant the writer didn't mean some heightened theological meaning of it, but sometimes he does. But if we're, always, if we're always looking for the heightened theological meaning, we can miss the most obvious meaning. It's kind, this is another way of saying when you hear hoofbeats, think horses, not zebras. Sometimes it's going to be zebras. Most of the time it's going to be horses. Now, the author could be communicating a deep theological concept using common words. And those words have their common meaning. So we don't want to read too much into the word unless the context supports reading into it that much. So, and there, there are a number of tools available. Um, I'm not... People can feel free to, to peruse them. I'll just kind of point out some of them fairly quickly. Um, we talked about Strong's Concordance. It's a huge tome of a book. I think it's available online, or there are online Strong's resources that are much more user-friendly. Um, but it, this literally, you look up a word in English, and it will show you where it is used, every verse that it shows up in English in a particular translation. Um, so this one also has a keyword comparison, so it'll compare how is the similar word translated across several different translations. Again, that's part of that word study, beginning to identify does this word have, can this be translated in different ways? There's some word study books, uh, Mick Reynolds, this one is a good one. It'll, this one is also keyed, though, to the Greek text, so there's an interlinear. 
Remember the Strong's numbers that I was telling you about? So when you look up that number, you can go to the back of the text to that number and it'll show every time that word shows up. So we can start beginning to get an idea of what's the range of usage of that word. Um, some Bibles, so one Bible that I have, the net, is really good in that it's just in your English translation of the Bible, but there are footnotes at the bottom where it will highlight in the Greek or the Hebrew particular important word words in that text and why they translated it that way but also what are some other potential meanings of that that can be really good um a, some interlinears um a good you know, a decent greek dictionary so there's one in the back of a greek new testament that i have um it's your basic dictionary this is the word this is what it potentially means so there's and there's a number of others like i said i could probably spend a little bit going through that time that we just don't have right now but I'll we can leave these out we can leave them up you know back there wherever for people who want to look okay yeah so we'll just have a we'll have a table sitting out over there for anyone that just wants to take a peruse through the different types of resources like I said the one that I probably use most commonly is Bible Hub I've found it to be a very user-friendly interface. Um, if anyone's interested in that, uh, wanting to set it up on their phone, I, Jess can do that, I can do that. I think, do you have that, Ken? Ken has it, so Lily has it. Um, so yeah, there's just a, a, number of different, a number of different texts that we have, a um, number of different tools. And ultimately, at the end of the day, all of this is for studying, you know, studying the scripture, um, understanding God's word better, being able to, as the writer says, to rightly divide the word of truth. We have to know what the word says. So this brings us to the end of our time. So let's close in prayer before we... <coughs> Father, we just want to thank you for this time today that we could dig more into understanding your word, understanding, understanding your revealed word to us. And Father, we, we take great comfort in knowing that you are not hidden from us. You have not hidden yourself, that you have made yourself known in your written revealed word. And we thank you that we have your word in languages that we can understand and that we have the tools available to understand your word deeper, and consequently to understand and know you, our Lord and our Savior. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.